welcome. I put in the chat uh, two of the interviews that I recently did with uh, Rabab that you might be interested in uh, looking at later on. So uh, this uh, webinar is co-sponsored by a number of groups Against the Current, which is the magazine that Solidarity puts out. Uh, we also have the US-Palestinian Community Network, Jewish Voice for Peace, and the Palestinian Youth Movement, all of them originating in Detroit, although uh, we obvious, obviously are connected to uh, the national uh, groupings. We'll get started. Uh, we're uh, going to have uh, short readings from the various uh, groups that are co-sponsoring. So uh, my name is Diane Feely and I'm a member of Solidarity and on the editorial board of Against the Current. Um, we welcome you to uh, this webinar. Uh, you now found your way to our website, so you can certainly look around uh, in the future. I would say that uh, Solidarity is characterized as being socialism for below, that is from below. That is, we don't think that there can be uh, an authoritarian socialism. There can only be a democratic socialism when uh, the masses of people are taking control over our lives. And that's why it's so exciting to see the various movements that are really springing up right now uh, in the face of uh, the authoritarianism and uh, in the face of the uh, pandemic. We also uh, put out a magazine, a, a, a bi-monthly magazine against the current. Uh, and I put in the chat box uh, two articles that we have uh, interviewing uh, Rabab over the last uh, couple of uh, months. All right, so I'm going to uh, ask then uh, Barbara Harvey from Jewish Voice for Peace uh, to um, give greetings and then maybe uh, we'll have uh, George next. Yeah, hi everybody. Um, I, I've been asked to say a few words about our chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, so that's what I'm going to do. We were formed in uh, 2006 when uh, it was still considered to be sacrilegious to mention such words as Palestine. And uh, we were just a small group. And uh, yeah. We would hold events and at all of our events. Um, uh, so, so we used to hold events and at every event, uh, Jewish Federation um, would send their representatives and, and uh, challenge our positions in, in uh, very kind of aggress overly aggressive, insulting ways, which stunned people in the audience and uh, turned out that they were our best friends because they were making, they were corroborating the points that we were making in our events. So uh, since then, we've seen a huge amount of change with uh, this movement really at this point, I think it's not an exaggeration to say represents the majority point of view on campuses across the country. And uh, this itself is just huge because it means that our position is the position of the generation that will soon be running this country. And that's really who we have always been addressing for that very reason. And uh, it is working and those poor Palestinians, I hope they can hang on long enough to see fruit come from our efforts. I think it will happen. 
Thanks, Barbara. I see that George has now joined us. George uh, Corey is uh, representing the U.S. Palestinian Community Network. George, can you make a few uh, remarks in greeting? Yeah. Well, I welcome everybody to get involved into the movement for providing justice for any people that are oppressed around the world. The Palestinian people definitely are at least from the recent uh, 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 recent efforts of people who would like to do anything to be able to obtain especially material things. I personally, I want to, uh, to appeal to our community first and then to the community that's supporting the Palestinian Israel second. Uh, normalization is the, the trend that I see what's happening. And I will say, do anything you can to be able to stop the normalization with people who don't deserve to be normalized with. And the other point that's very important for me is this. Um, there is a way for struggle. And depending what you have in life, what you want to do in life to be able to support, I really think that um, providing uh, some effort to see, to appeal to the American politicians who are running for election, to tell them, no, you have to first to realize my pain as Palestinian. You have to, um, to um, in a way, that is to, to, to normalization. And I really think I am not for the fact of substituting kinds of struggle with another kind of struggle that will at least uh, guarantee the existence of people who took over. I am from the generation who lost Palestine in 1948. And at six years old, I was displaced. So therefore, I think I'm not going to accept any other solution but to go back, all the Palestinians who were displaced, to go back to their homes, welcome the people who wants to live with them in peace and in equality, but not, not any other way. The, the, the normalization and the participation into a sort of American politician acceptance of the fact that the Palestinians, maybe they, they deserve a, a state. <laughs> and that's why I'm saying we have to be very careful about that because it's going to leave its effects on future generations and the way they struggle. So welcome to this. I hope that we will benefit out of it. I hope we will go to, into constructive resistance rather than uh, appealing to whoever is running for either president or whatever in the US elections. I am just not all for that at all. Go ahead. Thanks for those words, George. Now, um, Jenna Hassan from the Palestinian Youth Movement is on the call, but she's unable to speak, but she sends her greetings. Um, so now really without further ado, we're going to hear from Rabab. Uh, many of you have know Rabab Abdelhadi and maybe have even worked with her. Uh, she is a Palestinian who has lived in the United States and taught uh, particularly at the University of Michigan uh, Dearborn, where, which is where uh, many of us from Detroit met her. And then uh, over a dozen years ago, she went to San Francisco 
uh, State University to the School of Ethnic Studies, where she has developed a very innovative uh, program that doesn't just talk about, you know, the great history, the great figures in past history, um, but who talks about uh, the struggles and the issues and makes them relevant um, for uh, today's struggle. I remember uh, when I audited one of her classes at uh, U of M that she had a graduate student, and this is, I don't know, uh, 15 years ago, who was doing her thesis on comparing the wall in Palestine uh, to the wall on the southern border. Uh, so, uh, uh, Rabab is going to speak for about uh, 25 or 30 minutes, then we'll have time for questions and discussion. And during the course of her talk, you're welcome to put uh, comments or questions in the chat, and then I can recognize you uh, when we get to the discussion period. So, Rabab, would you please? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much. I always begin by acknowledging that San Francisco State University sits on unceded stolen indigenous lands of the Ohlone people. I also want to honor the martyrs who have fallen recently, who have fallen throughout the history for justice and freedom. I cannot name everybody in person, but I'm speaking also of people who fell from the movement for black lives to the people who are falling in Palestine, to the people who are suffering in Beirut and Gaza, to the many people over centuries of organizing struggles here in the US and elsewhere around the world. And I will, I will just speak more about that as we go along. I also want to thank the organizer. I'm, I'm really happy to be back in Detroit, which I think is, is my home, Detroit. I was at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. I see many familiar place, uh, faces. I'm very thankful to David Frankel and uh, Diane Feely and against the current solidarity for your continuous support. I remember the last event I did actually was in 2006 when you hosted me and Hedy Epstein, who was a Holocaust survivor, who has been one of the many voices of Jews against Zionism who actually say, no, Zionists do not own Jewishness. I'm also really, uh, very much appreciative of against the current support and the articles and so on and interviews. I'm very happy to be back with Diane, who was one of the strikers of the 1968 strike at SFSU. I see one of our comrades, also Nesbeth Crutchfield, is on the call as well, who was one of the leaders of the Black Student Union Third World Liberation Front. And we are very much inspired by that uh, connection. Also, I am really happy because Detroit is a hub of US labor history of organizing from drum to Arab workers to many organizing that was then and that continues now. And also um, the Arab, Palestinian and Muslim communities actually quite active along with many communities in, 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 uh, in Mexican town around the, the I mean, up, that's, those were the places for me and the Ebony bookstore, the Scarab, Club and so on and so forth. So there are many Detroits, as you know. I'm not. I'm speaking about my Detroit. I'm speaking about how I relate to Michigan, who are the people who I feel are my people. As many people know, I grew up, was born and raised in Nablus. Uh, my father uh, was from Janine. My mother was from Hanabtatul Karen. I'm not going to take more of that. I was asked. I had a very long um, a list of assignments that Diane gave me. So I'm going to try to 
as a good student to follow up and, and meet them all. But please, um, if I don't, we can also have them in the discussion. So first thing I was asked to give a little bit update about what's going on in Palestine. I think many of you know that Gaza has been bombed for the 15th consecutive day. And there is complete ignorance and visualization of what's going on in the media. And that is not accidental. There is also uh, COVID now, cases rising in Gaza. Uh, we hear here and there on social media that there is an increase of house demolitions in Jerusalem to basically empty Jerusalem of its Palestinian residents. And uh, there are curfews day in and day out. I hear about my own hometown, which also exposes the whole myth that there is such a thing as actually Palestinian independence going on as a result of Oslo, which we can speak about. Uh, there are currently 4,279 prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, Israeli jails. Four of them have, were come, uh, infected by COVID, but we do not know how many more. And actually some of them were infected by being exposed to the, to the Israeli prison guards who were actually supposed to be guarding them. We can speak more about what does it mean to actually be a prisoner. Why is it we need to call for abolition? Maybe in the discussion when we uh, get to that. Uh, I, I, uh, and there are children prisoners and I want to kind of like speak touch upon uh, the bill that Betty McCollin is, is proposing so no way to, to, to treat a child again and again which speaks to George's point about how when politicians are actually accountable to the people and when politicians don't care about the people and actually lobby us for a reactionary agenda. Uh, this is what's going on in Palestine very much resonates with what's happening in the US uh, both around the whole portion of police brutality and killings, the, um, the further marginalization of indigenous uh, people, the question of caging children at the borders, the question of oppressing everybody, the, 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 the issues of the way this administration has also increased and escalated the deprivation of people, including the whole question about um, gender and sexual rights, the question about um, the, 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 the way in which we are entitled, it's not a gift for us to be able to have jobs, to have homes, to have schools, to have food, to have decent uh, uh, salaries and so on, which is something that's been taken day in and day out away as a result of um, not only the Trump administration, I would say the system, trying to basically create facts on the ground under the COVID-19 cover of responding to COVID-19 and this is not something that's only happening in the United States. If we look what's happening around the world, all uh, authoritative um, rules, systems are actually trying to get rid of the opposition, to get rid of dissenting voices and so on. So I'm, we can expand on that more, but I'm sure many of you are following uh, what's happening. Uh, in this instance, I think it's really important to connect what's going on with the whole question of uh, the, um, again, I said abolition and so on, but also the collaboration between U.S. and Israeli um, police and people call it law enforcement. I don't really want to use that term because I think it's really important for us to be critical in the expression we use. If we say law enforcement, we're actually accepting this is a law and we are accepting that this is the right to do enforcement. And then we would accept that there are a few bad apples here and there. I think that's really problematic. I think we need to kind of like talk about authoritarianism. We talk about policing, we talk about military collaboration. And many of the police, uh, departments in the U.S. who have been involved actually from uh, Ferguson to Trayvon Martin, who wasn't killed by the police, but, they, but there was no justice. 
there to uh, Tamir Rice, to recently George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, many people. This is kind of like, this is, this is many of them have been trained by what have come to Israel to be trained. And I think it's really important to point out that there is a collaboration between the two. So I don't want to give the impression that it's actually if the U.S. forces were not trained by Israel, they would be fine. Because I, you know, kind of like our history in thinking about what's happening in this country, the oppression that has been going on from the deportation and expulsion of uh, uh, communists and indigenous to, to, to um, anarchists, to McCarthyism, to what happened to Japanese people and so on. This is, this is kind of like the DNA of the U.S. settler colonial state, of the U.S. racist state. So I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge that it is not just what's going on with uh, that Israel is only training, but also the fact that there is collaboration and there is sort of mindset. There is a, there is a shared mindset between the two. So I think it's really important for us to also keep in mind that we need to struggle against what the U.S. is subjecting people from the FBI to the CIA, to the police, to the ICE, to Homeland Security and so on, that they are actually subjecting people and using the, the instruments of government in order to repress and silence movement, especially because there was a huge shift in the late 60s. So they've been actually working very hard and we can also expand on this in order to change all of that, including changing the discourse of what people talk about, take away the gains. And this is always happens between management and labor, between oppressive and, and oppressed and oppressors and so on and so forth. It's not exceptional. And that's really important to keep in mind. It's not exceptional to Palestine and it's not exceptional to the U.S. and so on. What really makes it very problem problematic in the case of Israel is because we have main organizations claiming to be civil rights organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League and others. And this is, I think, uh, Barbara spoke a little bit about when you introduced JPP, who actually pretend to be for civil rights, for justice and so on, and basically get away with practically murder because they claim that they're fighting against anti-Semitism. And I think this is really an important point for us to discuss and also develop. I mean, JVP has been really amazing. Anti-Zionist Jews have been doing this stuff. In, and I, I always say that Zionism is a passing phenomenon and people laugh at me. And I said, yes, it's a passing phenomenon. This, the struggle against anti-Semitism, many people have spoken about it from Marx to the Bonds to many people have spoken about it before Zionism and they will speak about it after Zionism. So Zionism is just one of the options that exist. But the Zionist movement and the pro-Israel lobby in the U.S. would like us to believe that this is the only way to do it and the only way to fight against anti-Semitism and the only way to preserve and protect Jewish people and the only way to stop another Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust from happening is to kind of invest the settler colonial project called Israel in Palestine and the Palestinian land. And I think this is why it's really important that more and more people speaking about it which is also becomes more tense today, and we can speak about this later on. Why is it that there is more attacks today? Why is it that actually pro-Israel groups are very desperate because they are failing to cover up for what Israel is doing? And so basically they come to try to silence us here, which I will end up by speaking a little bit about Ahmed and what's happening with us in the program and so on. But, but this, is, this is really important to speak about that. So I wanna give a shout out to the Deadly Connections Project by Jewish Voice for Peace. I want to give a shout out to the Project Drop the, uh, the ADL, which today I received an email from uh, uh, a group to which I belong, California Scholars for Academic Freedom. I uh, serve on the executive committee and hundred more organizations joined Drop the ADL to actually expose the facade. That, and actually one of the problems with Anti-Defamation League and, and pro-Israel groups like that is what they do is he, it, it hides 
and it makes it very difficult for us to actually fight against real anti-Semitism and expose white supremacists from Charlottesville to elsewhere because they mix up things so much. So anything that Palestinians speak or anything that talks about justice in for Palestine gets, uh, um, gets uh, labeled as anti-Semitism and so on. The next point that I was asked to speak about, and I'm sorry that I'm jumping because I really want to cover different things, is that uh, uh, you asked me, Diane, some people ask about the whole question of the normalization agreement between Abu Dhabi and uh, Israel. I want to say, I mean, the New York Times had a very big headline saying Israelis, and I want to actually also resist naming it as Israelis because I want to maintain that there is a difference between the Israeli Zionist rulers, the, the Israeli government, and people in Israel. Of course, it's not today. The majority of the people on the ground in Israel are not on the position that we would like to put it mildly. But before 94 and the fall of the political apartheid in South Africa, majority of the white people actually supported apartheid. Of course, once apartheid politically fell, and I'm specifically saying politically, then everybody started saying that they were against apartheid. And some of us asked, if everybody was against apartheid, how come it lasted so long? How come people served here and there? But when uh, the, the apartheid political system fell, some people said that, you know, that, that many people actually um, joined, which also shows that when we accomplish, when we accomplish goals, it, it's much easier. It takes a long time for all of us to stay, to stay steadfast, to stay put. I'm, I'm also echoing what George said, in order for us to resist and then Later on, people will join, and that's okay. I mean, this is in the social movement. It's called the free, ride, the free rider problem, and we know that from the studies of civil rights and so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into it, but I want to just like emphasize about this whole agreement with the UAE. Um, I think it's really, really important that it's not the Arabs. I've been reading all the New York Times article, paying attention to Dominique, and they say the Arabs. The Arabs are, are, are moralizing. People, Emiratis are more, more normalizing. There's actually, there have been so many petitions by so many people, including in the United Arab Emirates itself, uh, protesting and saying that we don't sign on to this agreement. There has been also this really important to separate Arab governments, governments per se from people, especially governments who don't represent the people who are actually as engaged in repressing the movements as they are in actually normalizing with Israel and so on. I also heard like through some of the grapevine that the, even the rest of the Emirates, aside from Abu Dhabi, are not necessarily in agreement with this, but now with the economic crisis falling on them and so on, we can also talk about how did they come about, the whole oil economy, political economy, exploitation and so on. I don't have a lot of time to discuss, but I really want to emphasize that this is very separate. Arabs and Arab governments are very separate from each other, just like any area. We're not exceptional either in our region. I also want to say that this is something that also it's called to follows a very long, it's not in a vacuum, it's not accidental. As the U.S. tries to actually crush Iran and so on, they are trying to basically rally more of these Arab governments that have historically, I mean, historically have been part of the U.S. And I don't have time to go into it, but the United States government has been involved in subverting anything in our region that sought justice for over 100 years. I mean, the United States government actually supported the Belfort Declaration. People say this wasn't the case with Wilson, but that's not true. So various U.S. governments have done that due to ideological reason and due, and due to what the U.S. is all about and how it's done it. I mean, why would we expect the United States government to stand by the Palestinians when indigenous people were genocided, when black people were kidnapped and enslaved, when many people, including actually why Palestine, part of the reason why Palestine 
uh, was uh, uh, colonized by the Zionist project by actually shut the doors for Jewish uh, uh, and other uh, uh, refugees who were running away from the Holocaust and what was going on in the Second World War. So I think a lot of the time people forget that and exceptionalize and think about it. The US government has been very much involved in stunting and fighting against every single uh, uh, uprising and every single movement that was winning in the Arab world, from Oman in the 70s to Kuwait to Palestine to intervening in 1958 in, uh, against the tobacco workers in the south of Lebanon, the Maris, two against uh, Musaddaq in Iran. I mean, everywhere we have so much history that is available, including how they supported what began as uh, you know, a small uh, kingdom in Saudi Arabia, and we don't call it Saudi Arabia. And people in Detroit know there was a very strong movement of uh, Arab students from the Arabian Peninsula, and they never referred to that as Saudi Arabia because they don't acknowledge the family or the country. But there has been a lot of um, involvement, including more recently, the U.S. has been very much intent, especially since in 1979, the Iran Revolution took place, and the U.S. lost one of its main allies. And Kissinger himself said, the U.S. used to have two eyes, Israel and Iran, and it lost one when the Iranian uh, revolution took place in 1970. And of course, that's also when they started like relying more on Islamophobia and, and drawing on anti-Muslim ways to fight against revolutions and, and so on. And I don't want to take more time on that, but I, I am arguing that this is something whether, and then the other thing is that to argue that also uh, what, what the US have done, there have been agreements between Egypt, the Camp David Agreement and Israel, normalization, and uh, this is normalization. And when we say normalization, it's actually about normalizing injustice. So there is nothing wrong with that. You don't want to normalize injustice. You actually want to fight for justice. And uh, the Camp David Agreement that took place also between Egypt and Israel is what they quote unquote called, called peace because the majority of the Egyptian population actually doesn't support it and doesn't normalize and doesn't interact with Israel. And every single time there is a Palestinian uprising, something people rise up. And actually many of the Egyptian activists in the two, in 2000 when the Aqsa Intifada took place about 20 years ago, to be September 28th, the anniversary. Actually, majority of the Egyptians were organizing in support of Palestine, but they're also organizing in, for their own rights. And they employed many of these skills that they built in those movements in, in, uh, when the, uh, the revolution took place and then continued and we were and we can we can also expand on that so there have been there there every single jordan the same thing there is a very strong uh, boycott movement in jordan jordan actually last month and i think many of you may have signed the petition to support the uh, uh, trade unionists who were arrested so many of them have been released since then but that also there is a very strong connection between that which is also takes me to what's going on here um, uh, in the us and I, I, you know, so that, but, but and I think it's, uh, just tell me how much more time I have, because I have two more points to make, big points. So I just want to make sure that I stay with the time. I, I think you have enough time. Are you okay. speaking in terms okay. of 10 minutes? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, great. Okay. So, uh, so I, that takes me to the next point about the whole question, which George spoke about the movement. And everybody spoke about, and all of you are here because we have a movement. You are not, people are not here just to actually just like take an academic class and so on. And we also don't teach just academic classes. We really believe we need to be accountable to the community. We open our classrooms to the community. We want people from the community to come and interact with the students, as you said, Diane. By the way, that class you attended, I was criticized strongly by University of Michigan Dean because they said I was anti-American. 
because I was, you know, criticizing Israeli, criticizing the U.S. and so on. So that was one of the points to kind of like come back to it's very what's going on today. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that we have a movement. We have an amazing movement that's going on. And a lot of things are changing, including on Palestine. Of course, it's very difficult, but it's always the case. When the struggle gets stronger, oppressive powers actually get nastier. I mean, always, always the case. And this is what's happening with Palestine. This is what's happening here. Uh, there is a growing opposition to adopting Israeli-centric. When I say Israeli-centric, Israel as we know it, what it stands for and so on. And I think one of the things that are happening, and there is a lot of, there is more support for Palestinian right of self-determination, the right of return, ending the Israeli occupation, ending racism and discrimination against uh, Palestinian people understand what the Israel nation state law meant. People, when they learn about what's happening in India, for example, the citizenship law or the occupation of Kashmir and so on, there is a lot of parallels that people draw. Nothing is exactly the same. No contests are exactly the same, but there are a lot of, parallels with that. Here in the U.S., I think it's really, really important to remind ourselves amidst all this very nasty, vicious attack, which also if we analyze McCarthyism, we would be also reminded of that. Why is it that they actually targeted uh, uh, people who were actually communists? I mean, this is at one point in the 30s, I think the Communist Party had a million members or something. So it's crushing and instilling fear and having the chill factor and so on, making people lose their jobs. So it's not just about people being silenced. It's not about being able to, to speak or not. It's also what are the consequences of what happened. But we see, even in the Senate, BDS was debated. And of course, there was a whole support for Israel and so on, because there is a default position in the U.S. ruling class about that. But there is changes going on. The, the last week, and I'm, by the way, I am not uh, advocating for the Democratic Party or Biden or whatever, and I have a lot of criticism, which we can speak about. But at the Democratic National Convention, 350 delegates actually signed a statement calling on Biden to drop all the pro-Israeli uh, advisors that he had. There has been many people, we see more and more uh, people rising and actually challenging this, including many younger people from uh, Rashida Tlaib, you're in Michigan, Ilhan Omar, to uh, Jamal Bowman, Mundir Jones, everywhere there is a challenging about this uh, th that's going on. And of course, it's much harder. I think also I want to hear, uh, before I forget, I really want to shout, give a shout out to some people in your own areas, such as Amir Zahir and Huayda Arab, who also drafted the statement of Palestinian principles around what is it that we are going into any elections, whether it is national elections, primary, whatever, and so on. It was a very strong statement and many have been involved day in and day out and challenging building alliances with other people and challenging the view of saying progressive except from Palestine, of actually challenging that and talking about what does it mean that there is, uh, that, that, that if, what do we mean about justice? And so we've done, we have achieved uh, some victories. Of course, there are a lot of places we need to fight over, including the, the positions that we've heard from uh, the um, candidates of the, of the office of the White House, but also we remind ourselves that struggle is not every four years. Struggle is every day. Every single day we engage in the struggle. Every single day we fight. Every single day we educate. So I think it's really important for us to um, acknowledge that this is what, uh, what is happening. But one of the, we have achieved a lot of victories. And I would say on a national level, for example, um, how, I don't know how many people know who Kenneth Marcos is, 
but Kenneth Marcos is the founder of the Brandeis Center, which is a very right-wing pro-Israel group, one of the groups that I call them part of the Israel lobby industry. So there isn't like the official lobby, there's also individual groups. And Kenneth Marcos was fighting day in and day out against anybody on campuses that is advocating for Palestine. And he actually um, uh, charged Rutgers University of being anti-Semitic, Department of Justice came in, however weak it was, investigated and said, there is nothing, this is not true. And this happened in many cases, University of California, Irvine, San Francisco State University, CUNY, elsewhere. Every single time these investigations happen, actually they show that this is not really about anti-Semitism, it's of Israel and opposition to colonialism. Just like we oppose murdering people by the police, just like we oppose unfair housing, but uh, so Kenneth Marcos came and he was appointed, he was appointed by, uh, by, nominated by Trump to be the head of the civil rights within the Department of Education. And of course, as, as somebody who's in the academy, I'm very I'm attuned to all of these issues. And Kenneth Marcos made it his business to go after, A, reopen the case of Rutgers and go against all schools who, are, who have scholars, who are activists, for Palestine advocates and student groups, Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, Black Student Union, and many groups that are there. And also, by the way, in the, at the same time, he also, he also supported Betty DeVos from your area, not a nice person as we know, and in her very right-wing and privatization of the education agenda, and in kind of like um, getting rid of public schools, pushing towards charters, etc., etc. And so he and, and so, but people only think about like in our movements, we only think about what he's doing around Palestine. But he actually, uh, the arrogance, this is the arrogance of power. He actually thought that he could go after all these schools and get away with it. But nine civil rights groups, civil and community groups, filed a complaint about him, saying that he's actually misusing and abusing his office and so on. And this is really great because we always file complaints. I mean, I can tell you how many complaints I'm filing left and right and all my colleagues are filing. But in this case, Kenneth Marcus had to resign. So he resigned at the end of July. This was really very important because there was a very big battle around it. It doesn't mean they're not going to hire anybody else, but also the struggle is not one overnight. I mean, this is something cumulative. I think we really need to, to celebrate the victories that we made. And this is the similar thing that has happened, which you spoke about, um, um, uh, Diane, and I will, I will just make a couple of points and stop at that so we can have a discussion and conversation. This is also what happened to us at San Francisco State. I was recruited 14 years ago from Michigan uh, to start this new program, Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas, to become the fifth department in the College of Ethnic Studies. That came out as a result of the very successful and longest student strike in the history of the United States. Started on November 5th, 6th, and continued for over a year, more than a year and a half. And at the end of it, uh, the students demanded uh, accountable education. Students demanded that we need to bring the community and the, and the university together. Students demanded that we need to teach students about justice and not to, teach, and not to only teach about so-called classics and so on. Students demanded that they wanted to see their own communities, their experiences valid. And so I was really attracted to San Francisco State because of this what I call the spirit of 68. It was, it was really great to be part of that. And I came and the next year we had the 40th anniversary of the strike where I met some people here and other comrades who are not here with us. And we started building the program except the Zionists 
were had a problem with that because they actually there was a stencil with the university and they immediately started doing one step after another to undermine the program and cut it down from hiring giving ninety thousand dollars to start Israeli studies share to then basically uh, cancelling our searches by the former president which is part of my my job contract I should say that like a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about is actually uh, canonizing documents in legal documents and so on but also again as Kenneth Marcus the arrogance of power they think it's okay for them to trample upon us and if we dare speak up they want to actually put us in our place and we say no we're going to resist we're going to keep standing up for our rights so uh, they cancelled the searches, they took away the faculty lines, they stopped any funding of the program, complete defunding of the program. And um, as I said in the, in the interviews with Diane and against the current is that I thought that, look, you hired me to do a job. I came here to do a mission. I'm accountable to the community and to the students. I'm not only accountable to the university administration and definitely I'm not accountable to the pro-Israel law. I'm not accountable to them and I'm not going to allow that. So I talked with people students, graduate students, scholars, and so on. And we actually succeeded in creating the minor in Ahmed, official minor. We succeeded in having 22 courses that all fulfill general education. We succeeded in creating the Edward Said scholarship, building on the mural that the students, uh, we, have, we were able to have after uh, in 2007, which I would, I'm proud to say I played some role in it. And this was also, we succeeded in having an agreement with the only agreement San Francisco State has with any Arab or Muslim side, with Al Najah National University, that we are implementing. We're not only, we don't have it only on paper, as the many agreements, we actually go to Al Najah, we host people, we collaborate with each other, and so on. And we also uh, build delegations which are going to engage with Palestinians in a very critical solidarity way. So it's not just a delegation to go and then come back and just assuming that people who go on delegation are sort of empty vessels. They go to sea and then they come back and they got shocked and so on. Because you don't really have to go to Palestine. You don't have to go anywhere to recognize there is justice and injustice. But it definitely strengthens your case if you go and see, because now you have the knowledge for it. So we've had multiple delegations, including the indigenous and women of color feminist delegation whose most prominent member is Angela Davis. That was the only time actually went to Palestine in 2011. We drafted very strong statement. We had the academic uh, delegation in 2014. We had the prisoner solidarity first one in the history of the United States between Palestinian prisoners and US. We had on it Emery Douglas. We had Laura Whitehorn. We had Claude Miles from Freedom Archive. We also have uh, people who were working on Mumia Abu Jamal uh, freedom case and uh, we had the pamphlet that prisoners here in the US wrote to Palestinian prisoners and we were our partners with the women's studies program at Birzeit University and what they did is they translated the pamphlet to Arabic printed 500 copies so wherever we go we can take the statement with us to Palestinian freed prisoners and people can see the support and the love and so on and there there is a lot of more work that is going on now we're continuing to do that and actually Mumia Abu Jamal called us collect from his prison, called one of our colleagues, and expressed his solidarity with the conference, which was, I mean, for people there under siege, you know, if you're under siege, you know what this means and how important it is. So we continued doing this. The last step that we were unable to accomplish was the study abroad program in Palestine. We got to the point where we actually 
almost had it. Our students went and got their visas and their passports, got permission from their families and so on. And the last minute, they canceled it. Uh, and all the stuff that they've done was actually violation, violation of even their own rules. Like they subjected us to things they never subjected anybody, whether it is study abroad in Israel or anybody else, any other. I, I compare with my colleagues and so on. So, uh, but, uh, and so, I'm, you know, as many of you may know, I am suing the university to hold them accountable. I have filed multiple labor agreements. My labor union is amazing. We just filed one last week because uh, the university canceled two Palestine-specific courses in the spring, hit them without making them even available to students to take them. And so basically they took them out of the, of the, out of the, 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 the options. And then they come and tell us, oh, this is student demand. And we said, well, how would student demand be accomplished if you don't actually give the students an option to choose these courses and so on? One course is called Comparative Border Studies, Palestine and Mexico, which you alluded to. Uh, part of its history actually started in 2001 in New York and, and in Cairo, when I was in Cairo. And then the second is the Palestinian Mural and the Art of Resistance. And both courses have been targeted by Zionists and both topics have been targeted by Zionists and by right wing. And then including campus reforms, including multiple Zionist organizations. And, uh, uh, and then my course, my uh, course that I was planning to teach introduction to Arab and Arab American feminism was canceled and in its place, they supposedly assigned me to teach an introductory level course, which is not why I, what I was hired, it's not part of my job. Uh, so now I, today's class, yesterday the classes began, I've had to spend time to design new syllabus to take care of students. They actually ended up assigning me four courses instead of three, which is what is supposed to happen. So I, we filed the grievance, the union has been behind me in that. Our community is supporting us. And we continue doing what we need to do, which is teaching Palestine for justice, teaching, producing justice knowledge, uh, justice-centered justice knowledge on the basis of the indivisibility of justice. So in the summer, I don't know if you know, and I hope that you will check, we've had very successful webinars. We had a webinar in July on Black Lives, Black Liberation, and the indivisibility of justice, at which Angela Davis, Gerald Horn, uh, Robin Kelly, Dayo Gore, and Beverly Gishiftal participated. It was viewed by 9, over 9,000 people. And in, in August, we had a webinar on indigenous black and brown liberation, abolition and reparations and resistance. And so far, it was only like last week, I think. So far, we had over 4,000 views of it. Our webinar on teaching gender and sexual justice in Arab and Muslim communities was likewise attended now by over 1,000 people. And what we do is because we have no resources, and this is where I want to like end, is that when you have your resources, you have to make do with whatever you have. It is something that I learned growing up in Palestine under Israeli occupation. And I also learned being here an activist in the movement in the US and working with many, many people, including many people on this, on this uh, meeting today, learning how do we stretch whatever resources we have? How do we make, how do we say no? Every time they say us it's not possible, we kind of try to find creative solutions. Because if we don't, if we accept what they're telling us and go away, we will never be, be able to accomplish something. So uh, we are determined to continue doing this. We are determined to continue educating our students. And I would really like for people to check out our website, Ahmed Studies at Facebook. The, the official one, we don't control it. So we can't actually do much with it because the university controls it. So we put things on the official 
an official website. And this is, and we have a broad, broad, broad community that we call Ahmed Communities for Justice. That includes people who have fought against, against Japanese incarceration, includes people from Jewish Voice for Peace, includes scholars and activists, includes the union, includes scholars at other universities, includes women activists, feminist activists, labor activists, Latinx communities, Asian American studies, and so on. We have people from different communities who are standing by us. And we have amazing students. I am an advisor for student groups who are actually refusing to uh, accept these injustices and continue learning and continue graduating and continue becoming leaders, including uh, some of the leaders, some of the groups here, um, one of the co-founders of Palestinian Youth Movement, I'm happy to say was actually one of the first MA, the first student who actually received her MA in Ahmed Studies. And she went on to get her PhD. And now she just started uh, working as assistant professor at UCLA. We have a student here, Salim Shahade, who, who did an amazing job and did his thesis on uh, um, student activism at San Francisco State, received the hood for his college, Creative and Liberal Arts, which includes Israel students, by the way, but he, but he was nominated and he received it nonetheless. And now uh, Salim has actually yesterday submitted his paper for the PhD dissertation. And at the end of the September, he will be all for dissertation. So we have, we can, I can tell you more and more, and I see a lot of my students from my classes, even from the classes that began yesterday, are joining us today. So I think this is kind of like an ongoing struggle. This is something we continue with each other. We work with each other. We do intergenerational uh, conversations. We have a big event on November 5th and 6th uh, with uh, uh, veterans of the 1968 strike. We have, uh, we're commemorating the 1950th anniversary of the 1970 statement uh, that was published in the New York Times by black uh, radical intellectuals, including uh, Sam. Uh, Sam Anderson, including the former chair of SNCC, uh, including the um, Fran Beal, who created the Third World Alliance for the SNCC, including uh, Ella Collins, Malcolm X's sister, Grace and James Lee Boggs from Detroit, and so on. So we're going to be having a conversation with the members. And uh, I would just say, I want to just say a couple of things. We're going to uh, next week on September 9th, we're going to be hosting Leila Khaled in historic conversation, the Palestinian Revolution, with in conversation with Roni Kasriz from South Africa, who was the main leader of the ANC, an anti-Zionist Jewish person, with Laura Whitehorn from New York and Viseko Odenge, and the chair of the Women's Studies Institute and Birzeit. At the end of the month, we're having the 50th anniversary of the passing of Jamal Abdel Nasser and the birthday of Elan Bebran. And so on, I have so many I can share with you. Please check out our website. Please engage, please support. Please just write your email, call, protest, tell the universe that it's okay, not okay what they're doing to us. Because we're here to stay. We're here to stay, our program is here to stay, and we're here to link up with everybody towards justice for all. I do believe that another world is possible, but only if we make it together. Thank you. Thank you, Rabab. So uh, people can see that uh, she opened up a wide-ranging discussion, uh, and so there are many different lines that we could uh, could go down. But I know that Nabil put in the uh, chat very early on a uh, comment about the um, uh, agreement uh, uh, between uh, Netanyahu and. Uh, and the UAE, 
So, um, Nabil, would you like to uh, yeah. comment on why you think it's not uh, so something that's very important? Well, it's not so much that it's not so much that it's not important. It is. I think we all know the UAE has never ever been consequential at all in the Palestinian issue. I mean, they have never really never done anything. I mean, you know, there's it's like they don't exist. Like they're not even on this continent, right? I think. Given it, given given that accord or that agreement, so much, so much credence of so much um, uh, importance, if you wish, is just making it, bringing it, bringing it to the, bring. How should I say that? It's like giving it more than it deserves. The only thing I think that the thing has has been done right now is it's been stalking now to give Trump and Netanyahu a boost because they're both in deep, you know what, politically. <laughs> So it's just basically just to show up their, their base, really, to be honest with you, because really there is nothing that UAE, they've, they've, been, they've been friends with Israel for God knows how long. It just made a decent paper. And I don't know if you guys saw this today. The Israel, Netanyahu opposed the sale of F to F-35s to the UAE. And if you guys saw it today or not. Now, that's kind of interesting because I mean, it's kind of like funny to say, I'm glad they did because we don't need these F-35s anyways. We don't need to spend the money on a stupid thing. But on the other hand, it's insulting because who's the master here? I mean, the, Israel is forbidding the United States from selling F-35 to UAE. Like I said, again, on one hand, I'm happy because we don't need them and we don't need more arms in the Middle East. But at the same time, it's like, who's calling the shots here? Who's the master and who's, you know, and who's the subject? But, but the last thing that I want to mention about that also about the UAE is very peculiar is because there are over 300,000 Palestinians that work in the UAE. They make their livelihoods from the UAE. So what Abbas just did uh, recently by recalling the, the ambassador could jeopardize the life of 300,000 Palestinians because these guys have no heart. I mean, that could expel them tomorrow, just like, just like Kuwait did in, after the Iraq invasion. So that's kind of, that's like the reason. I mean, it's not like a very, very strong reason or something, but I'm just saying it's just, I think giving it more attention and, and, and blasting it and doing all this thing, I think doesn't have the effect that we really want it to have. It would just let it go. Just, you know, let, let them be because it doesn't make a difference. This does not make a difference. That's just my opinion. I mean, it sounds very, very kind of like a banal or something, but it's, it's no. just, I don't know what you think about, but, that's, yeah. that's kind of... Yeah. Thank you, Nabil. Can I, uh, can I respond, Diane, or wait for it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Nabil. Actually, I, I also did not really think that it is such a big deal. I mean, it was... May I say something? Well, it is, it is a big deal. Oh, hold on a second. Uh, Nesbitt, do you want to uh, go, go right before uh, Rabab speaks? Let me respond to this, Nesbitt, and then uh, because... Unless you want to talk to this point. Nesbitt, did you want to speak to this point? Oops, somehow, okay. yeah. There I'm going to speak yeah. to this point in reference to us uh, giving any weight or leverage to um, the UAE and Israeli um, um, accommodation. I think I, I, um, I would like to speak to that. Sure. All right. Let's let's uh, let's uh, have you speak, and then if there's anybody else who wants to comment, uh, we can do that before Rabab gets a chance to um, to comment. Please go ahead, Nesbit. I think that it's important for us to keep in mind that 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 
In general, the Arab world does not support is the Palestinians. I have to say that, but it's true from the standpoint of what they say rather than uh, uh, what they do. I think that um, the UAE was um, a guys with the United States and Israel, and they made a deal. And the deal was was that Israel and the United States would support to annex the Palestinian areas uh, as a, a as a position, uh, and then would uh, agree with UAE that they wouldn't do that. The UAE then signed an agreement with Israel of a, of a commission and collaboration. But in the meantime, it is clear as of today that the reason why the UAE was willing to do that is because they guaranteed by the United States as part of this bill that they would some F-35s. Uh, and I think of all of this being just a mentality of capitalists. The main thing I'm concerned about is uh, psychologically and politically, it does not look good for a government to agree with the Israelis with the Zionists. And this makes them way even more potent support for the Palestinians. And I think it is in our self-interest not to ignore this, but to, but to educate people about what's going on so that both both people in the United States, people throughout the world, uh, and people in Palestine, both in the West Bank and Gaza, understand exactly what this bullshit is about. Um, I know that there's another important question that's going to be coming up, and that is about uh, the Democratic Party and its position on uh, Israel and the, the whole Middle East. But uh, let's continue this discussion. Yeah. Let me have, yeah, let me respond to this because I, I yeah. you know, first of all, I do. I agree, Nabil, that I think that it is something that was going, that was, seems to be happening, okay? I, but I was asked actually to speak about it. And I, when, when they were talking about the so-called deal of the century and so on, I gave an interview and I said, it doesn't really concern us. This is something between Israel and, and the Trump and so on. But I think it's important for us to analyze it. Uh, I think it is the whole question about when we say the Arab word, Nisbet, it is, I think we need to distinguish between Arab governments and Arab people. I think majority of the Arab governments also, until now, part of the reason, if you think about the alliance with Trump and so on, he was in Saudi Arabia, they hugged him and kissed him and did all of this stuff and so on. Also trying to create a rift between Sunni and Shia in the area. I mean, all of these things are classical recipes that happen in other parts of the world. The, the reason the rest of the, 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 the governments who actually do have relations with Israel because the Omani revolution was suppressed by support from Israel and Iran and the US. I mean, this is not something new. We have, we know the history, we go in it, it's all available. And the reason these governments actually are hesitating to enter into agreements with Israel and so on, because they keep telling us, and your caps keep saying, oh, the Arab world has forgotten about Palestine and so on, but that's not true. If people are able to go and protest, they'll go and protest in the streets because they believe because zionism and israel does not only affect the palestinians and i think this is i think when we construct it only as a palestinian property it becomes a, a bigger issue because it makes it exceptionalized but if we think about it what does it do to the arab world what has the camp david done after egypt signed it with with, uh, with israel first of all i think it's really important for us as 
as people who understand political economy and history and so on, is that uh, Egypt Camp David did not come about until Jamal Abdel Nasser died and uh, Sam Anwar Sadat became president. And actually after he started the open door policies where he invited all the multinationals to come in and exploit Egypt. I think to put it in its context, I think it's really, really important to say that. So I do not agree that the Arab world or the Muslim world or the third world does not support Palestine. I believe that people support Palestine despite the collaboration of the government, despite the fact that the governments, as you said, Nabil, are very much part of the US and so on, despite the fact that this is what they are doing and so on. And so um, I don't know about withdrawing the ambassador or not and so on. Honestly, you know, I will just say that, Nabil, is that I think the steps of the Palestinian Authority with all due respect, okay, Everything is always too little, too late. Everything is like little symbolic things here and there. I mean, they said they're going to stop this and so on. I keep asking, why don't you just declare, dissolve the Oslo Accords? I mean, why don't you just say, why are you allowing Israel to continue pretending that it's actually living up to international agreements and so on? But we can, we can if you want to, we can talk more about it and so on. But I do think that it is indicative, the agreement with the UAE is indicative where Trump's power is coming in, where the U.S., not just Trump, where the U.S. power is coming in. And I want to remind us also, this is the same thing that happened with that, the... Um, the world is not for the Palestinians, what I'm talking about are the government. I know that people support the Palestinians. I know there was a thing called Arab Spring that was crushed and Mohammed Mursi and many of his compatriots were killed and flooded and oppressed. I'm talking, talking about the, the government. I am not talking about the people have not been represented. The only, the only government that even attempts to support Palestinians, I'm talking about from the standpoint of action. Listen to me. I'm not talking about words, Iranians. So I am not surprised at all that the A, uh, uh, the the U, uh, U uh, signed this this uh, this agreement with the, with the Israelis, and and I would not be surprised if I do also because they don't represent the people; they represent their capital agents in uh, uh, in the Middle East and uh, North uh, East Africa. Okay, so we can agree to agree to disagree. Okay, so I think, but I think this is this discussion about the UAE and so on, like we really need to, I don't think we completely disagree anyway, but yeah. Right, but and I, I think we all agree that we need to analyze it, however yeah. much we put it in the spotlight. Yeah, just to be able to respond. I mean, for me, the most important aspect is that it gives the I impression think I think it's important to Nesbitt, educate Nesbitt, ourselves Nesbitt, and our people. Nesbitt. And to educate internationally we're trying to do this is an international issue you know and it's important for us to understand it and educate we are educators and revolutionaries and internationalists okay thanks nesbit um what was the next question there was a question well about... i think Sorry. that um michael uh, friedman has a question michael why don't you uh Explain what you what what the arms sales agreement is about. 
Yeah, I, I, I just, I mean, I think this deal was more about arms sales. The U.S. wanted to sell F-35s to more Arab countries than just Saudi Arabia. Israel wanted to expand the arms, sales, security, arms and security technology. It's already been selling to the UAD under the table by being able to do it openly. And annexation is kind of the fig leaf to let all that happen. Or the lack, you know, the, 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 the opposition, the supposed opposition to annexation is just the fig leaf to let that happen. And Netanyahu will do what he wants to do about annexation. The UAE will do whatever it's going to do. But nobody's speaking to the annexation that's actually going on with the increased settlements, whether it's, you know, and that's going to continue no matter what. So basically, I think this was just an arms deal. That, that's my two cents. And I just interesting how you okay. use which also the US also is kind of so quote unquote trying to save the economy. Yeah. yeah. I mean this is like so, all of propaganda, but let's move on. So that. I think uh, people are interested in a question about uh, uh, someone wanted to ask the question of has the D Democratic Party supported the rights of Palestinians? Uh, and uh, maybe you could answer that. Uh, with more than a yes or a no? Yeah. Uh, no, it has not. And I think uh, I'm going to actually use this opportunity to expand a little bit upon that because uh, uh, there, there is kind of a lot of pressure on us now to, to say that uh, just, just go with it and so on. But that's not okay. The Democratic Party historically has also been uh, supportive of Israel. As a matter of fact, the U.S. ruling class, and I think this is something for us really important to talk about, because the U.S. ruling circles, ruling class, has historically supported both, supported Israel. And as I said, this is ideological, this is political, this is quote-unquote, they call the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's a lot of the reason there is interest. Israel is very important for the U.S. in the region. There is oil in the region. There is strategic interest and so on. So I think, you know, what Nabil was saying at the beginning, yeah. But I, the, 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 the other question of it is we were thinking always, as Palestinians, we were always trying to analyze, and George may actually remember some of these discussions. We were always trying to analyze how do we get to the point where what happens with Palestine would be something like happened in Vietnam. Not, I'm not saying it's the same. We don't have the same movement, unfortunately. But in Vietnam, the, the, the ruling class split. Along with the Vietnamese resistance and the split of the ruling class, it was possible to have the peace movement move with the conscientious objectors and so on. This historically has not been the case in Palestine. Actually, you see democratic presidents who might have all sorts of social policies with, let's say social Democrats might like, maybe might not like, but let's talk about Obama. I mean, Obama gave Israel $38 million. And you think that he would be the one, we would assume. But I think there is a problem with that. One is that it assumes that one person can save it or break it, make it or break it. And that's really a problem with thinking about figures that will come in. And this is also relates to the ways Palestinians ask, where is your Mandela? And people who are in South Africa will tell you that this is not the way the situation was. It was collective and so on. And also this is a very racist thing to ask and so on. And also you killed most of our leadership. Many people have been assassinated and so on. But, so it's not individual. The other aspect of this is that there is a lot of connections, and I think this is the thing that we really need to break down. We need to break down the hold 
that Israel has, this Israeli-centric position, that equates anti-Semitism with opposition to Israel. I mean, I think this is one of the, 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 most, the most pressing issues. The other question is that all these politicians and everybody who's rising starts from the default position, which is Israeli-centric, saying this and this Israeli security, and we need to ask the questions dig deeper. A, I think we need to be centered where the oppressors are and center the oppressed people, which is what we do in all our analysis. Why can we, why don't we do it in the case of Palestine, number one. Secondly, I think when they ask something like this, we need to be prepared with our answers to say, what security you're talking about? I mean, who's Israel is one of the strongest parties in countries in the world. It's very strong, it's actually destroying it. How many, how many times Israel has already went and bombed Iraq, bombed Syria, bombed, I mean, Israel does that all the time has poisoned the Iranian nuclear scientists. And so Israel, Israel's reach has gone and assassinated people in Dubai. I mean, so when something like this happens, we shouldn't really accept it and say, oh, and then Palestinians need security too. We can say that, but at the same time, also we need to question the premise of that because it's a, it's a faulty argument. And I think it's really important to come up with that. Secondly, I know there are a lot of people who are very much involved in the Democratic Party. I'm, I have to say that I'm a registered Democrat because whenever people tell me to go fill out the form, I do it, okay? And I know some of my students, some of my colleagues, some of the people will say, why are you even doing it? Because you're giving credibility to the two-party system. And there is problems with the two-party system. And I think there is a serious problem with Biden. I mean, I wish Bernie Sanders did not withdraw when he withdrew. I wish Bernie Sanders had stood in and said, no, I'm not going to withdraw. The problem with Bernie Sanders also, and this is something that I would just say, not only as a Palestinian, as also somebody who's involved in all these movements. Also, he was susceptible and part of the system. I mean, he could be to the left of the system, but he's not what he, and he learned a lot, he moved a lot, he became Ammo Bernie, according to a Palestinian, including the Detroit area and so on. But every single battle we had to fight again and again. And I think we really need to go to the point where we don't have to start from scratch every single time we talk to the president. But I think the way to do it is to build a strong movement that pushes itself on. And I want to give a small example from the movement for black lives. Before this most recent struggle around black lives and black liberations, not the only one, it's been ever since, ever since people were kidnapped and brought against their will to this country. People have been resisting, so with the indigenous people and so on. This history that we need to teach and we want to teach, and we teach when we are, when, whenever we are not pre prevented from teaching. There is always resistance. Whenever there is oppression, there is resistance. The question is to start actually building a strong movement that imposes itself. People have been talking about bringing down the statues forever. I mean, people I know, I mean, I know a lot of people who always go and protest in front of the Museum of Natural History in New York around the, the Theodore Roosevelt uh, statue. And nobody will move it and people might get arrested and so on. Now they're going to take it down. Why? Because there is a power in movement that's imposing itself on certain things. This is the same thing with the Palestinians. When the 1987 Intifada took place, a lot of people got educated, got galvanized in it. The BDS movement used to be something that nobody mentions. Now it is something that people talk about. And if um, at one point the New York Times actually even wrote this big article saying, oh, is this really important? And somebody in the nation, Eric Altman, 
who used to say that he is a Zionist, it's irrelevant and so on. After Peter Beinart wrote the article in the New York Times saying, I do not support Israel. Eric Alterman wrote also saying, I also don't support. I also do not support, subscribe to Zionism. The struggle of the people pushes the agenda. So I think today, from here until November, people are going to talk about it and so on. And I could see, definitely, definitely, I want, uh, I want uh, Trump out. But I don't think what, what Biden and Harris ticket is offering is enough. I think we need to continue pushing. I don't think we should need to allow them to take us for granted. I think they, every single time, people need to tell them that do better. And then when comes November 3rd, we may have to go like this and go vote because maybe this is the only thing. But it all depends what, what, what the positions of the movement. And I, and I, I mean, I think this is a debate that is ongoing. But I don't think everybody, when he appointed Harris, everybody got so excited because she's a black woman. It is not about color of the skin. It's about an agenda. It's about what sort of an agenda. She actually, we know her from San Francisco. She's a cop. She has prosecuted people. She's put them in prison and so on. It, it's not enough to have a skin color. It's not enough to be Palestinians that many Palestinians on this list and friends of Palestinians know. It's not enough to be Palestinian because there were Palestinian security services that went and arrested other Palestinians and put them in prison, searched with Israel, went on nightly raids and so on. They got trained by, by, by U.S. generals. So just be, being part of the people, I think we really need to separate between an entity and not, not attach, say, the Arabs or the Palestinians and so on. Separate and say, there are, it's about programs. It's what, what programs we are talking about and how we can push that program. And even the whole thing about some people in the Democratic Party being pushed and having better positions than others and so on, because of people on the ground that are pushing. And maybe people need to push against me, please go ahead. I'm fine with that. So uh, Yusuf asked a question of why don't uh, we join the black movement? And it seems to me that that is happening. Uh, do you want to just comment on that, Rabab? Yeah, I, I think we definitely, um, I think there is a, def I, I, I know what you are saying, Yusuf. You are saying we need to be supportive. I think we, um, we can join, but we actually need to accept black leadership of the movement. I think, and I think on that we agree. But I think also historically there have been a lot of solidarities and collaboration between the communities. We have people in our community, and I will be the first to say, that have also exercised racism and absorbed white supremacy. And I always say them, the minute they land on the plane, even people who are very radical before they come to the U.S., they sort of get turned into whiteness because that's the common good. That's the thing that everybody thinks that they're going to achieve. Of course, they never achieve it because if you're not, if you're not from upper class, if you're not white, male, heterosexual, Anglo, and so on, there is there is no way you're going to be treated equally. And people need to be reminded again and again. But uh, so some of our people actually, we really need to do our own education, our own our community, and so on, and support movement for Black Lives as we support movement for Palestinian liberation. I don't think we exceptionalize. I don't we say, oh, we'll go support their events and they support ours. I think the way we do it, and I think this is what you're suggesting, Yusuf, is we think about it as a, as a question of justice. That Palestine is not special interest, and neither is liberation against uh, racism is a special interest. We all have an interest in fighting against white supremacy. We all have an interest in fighting against racism. We all have an interest when black people win, 
against racism and so on, we all win. I, I think of them as joint struggle perspective, that we have multiple fronts. Whenever people do well for themselves, we Palestine does better. Whenever Palestine does better, it reflects itself on other communities. And this is the webinar we had in July, actually. I mean, this is not only webinars. There are many. There have been many. Our black sisters and brothers have actually affirmed over and over and over that this is, there is a connection between the movements. We, they see this and everybody sees this as a question of justice. We see it too. And I think that's what we need to, to, to hold on to. Not allow anybody in the Democratic Party or anywhere else to consider us only special interests. Oh, we're going to give the Palestinians something. We're going to give the Arabs something. We're going to give the blacks something. No, no, no. We're all unified in our struggle for justice for all. And we support each other. Maybe every day in and day out, I am busy with the struggle around Palestine. But I belong to every single time a statue falls, every single time there is defunding of a police department, every single time the people in Portland stand up and actually fight and so on, I see that as, as, as somebody who is fighting for Palestine. And it does contribute to that. And it's very clear because movement for black lives, why was it attacked by Horowitz? Why was it attacked by Zionist groups? Why was it attacked by everybody? Partly because they support Palestine. They had in their platform BDS, they talked about genocide and so on. Another part of it is also there is a very strong resistance, white supremacist resistance to black liberation, to indigenous liberation. The opposition to reparations is an opposition also not only to Palestine, which is what they, and I don't know if you have time about that, but this is what happened with the World Conference Against Racism in, in Durban. In Durban, US and other groups and so on did not want to talk about reparations, did not want to talk about racism and so on. And they made it about Palestine. And of course, some people were thinking only we're going to talk about Palestine and so on. They shut down the whole discussion. And they do this day in and day out. And people from California probably would know what I'm talking about because this is one of the excuses to fight against the ethnic studies curriculum in California schools, which reflects itself as a result of the struggle around critical ethnic studies and critical race studies, using saying that this is about, you know, Palestine, anti-Semitism and so on, and they derailed the agenda. But this is for people who know the history, very similar to what happened in Ocean Hill, Brownsville in 1968, in the sense that the, 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 the people who were fighting, the white supremacists who were fighting against black and brown parents who thought that they sh we should be able in control of the school boards to say what our kids will learn and be taught about and become proud of themselves and so on. There were teachers who supported the black and brown families and there were teachers like Shankar who were Zionists and actually even printed flyers as if they were on behalf of black and brown saying, saying that anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic stuff and so on. And it was discovered later on that they were actually trying to do that, the Zionists, to undermine the strike using anti-Semitism as a tool. This happens every single day. And I think this is the whole um, tactic of divide and rule. It works in every single movement. So I think when you're saying, yes, we join, we join, we go and we stand on the picket lines, we ride, we protest, we feel the victories the same way we feel our own victories and so on, because they're our own. So we actually start thinking of the movement as we're part of those movements. Every single time somebody stands and says no to Charlottesville, somebody says no to the massacre at the trees, the Tree of Life Senegal, somebody says no to all, to all of everything that is happening around the world, we're also advancing the cause of justice for us all. It advances all of us. So yeah, thank you. This is really a great question. Thank you for asking. 
say something. And I've, I think that there's been quite a bit a, of, uh, historically, the Black community, and now I'm not talking so much about leadership, I'm talking about just people living in the community, have been more supportive of Palestinians. I remember my stepdaughter was uh, uh, in a situation where the teacher was a Zionist and was explaining the Israeli point of view. And uh, she came home and declared herself a Zionist. So we had a discussion with her. And, uh, and then she said, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I relate to my teacher if she's a Zionist and we're not? And I said, you know, you protect yourself. You, you don't have to speak out <laughs> as a fifth grader. Uh, but in uh, l later on, I discovered there were many other black parents in that classroom who had had a similar conversation with their children. So at that time, we had we were forced to protect our 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 children from a Zionist teacher in the public schools. But mm. I was really impressed by the number of just ordinary uh, African Americans in uh, Brooklyn at the time who. Uh, who understood that the Israeli uh, attacks on the Palestinians were not in their interest. Mm -hmm. And let me also add, I mean, I began by saying that I'm happy to be in Detroit because I also remember drum. I remember black workers and Arab workers coming together in, the, in, in Ford and other factories and striking with each other. Uh, there are certain things I don't remember because some of them happened before I came to the US and so on. But SNCC, for example, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, took a very strong position against Zionism and against Israel. And actually, Fran Beal and uh, Phil Hutchins, who will both be on the November 1st uh, roundtable of the 50th anniversary of the New York Times statement, actually speak about what happened then and how they stood forth. Sam Anderson, who was the editor of the New York Times statement uh, 50 years ago on November 1st, actually said that his, the president of Sarah Lawrence College, where he was teaching, he was a professor who was asked to start black studies. He was told, don't come back to work. Come back once a week. And then he never, ever received a tenure track job. Uh, professor Fred Dube from the African National Congress, he was on the executive committee of the African National Congress. And in 1985, we worked with each other on a project uh, called uh, Israel and South Africa, the Apartheid Connection. Uh, through the Palestine Solidarity Committee. I, I coordinated 26 city tour uh, between the ANC and Palestinians to speak. And Fred Dube was fired by Como, Mario Como, from his job at SUNY Stony Brook. And he entered the congressional record around the whole attacks against us. So this is not something that just started. This is, we know about yeah, it now because now. it's happening every like single day. But this is something, this is a very long term. It, I think this is sort of like the histories that we actually really need to talk about and pass on. Because this is the same as the history of anti-Zionist Jews actually is longer than the history of Zionists. And so I think this is really important. The history of Arab radicals and support for Palestine. There is so much stuff out there that we need to talk about the history of the Japanese community that went and stood by Palestinians in the Los Angeles aid case. Every single day you will see people coming to, I mean, this is when people say to me, oh, Palestinians are all alone. And I say, no, we're not alone. We're not alone at all. We have one of the most biggest movement that has solidarity from people around the world. 
despite governments, despite the United States, despite Israeli collusion, despite all of the tricks they play and so on, we actually have a very, very strong movement because it's a movement about justice. And I think this is the same for the, the black liberation. This is the same for all the movements that are going on. So I think, and by the way, I want to just add one more thing is that right wing, by the way, is also aligning. So if you go to David Horowitz's website, for example, one of the leading Islamophobes in this country who has been attacking us left and right, attacked the movement for black lives. He attacked sanctuary. He attacked uh, undocumented. I mean, the guy is like equal opportunity hater. And I think this is where we need to link, make the links and make them knowable because I think history that is not known because we're also always taught the history of, of, of the victors, right? The, not the vanquished. So we need to revise the history and present our narratives of resistance, our narratives of resilience, our narratives of solidarities, because, and then also educate our people about the need for everybody to stand in solidarity with each other and support each other. Youssef wanted to uh, come in and say something about the question that he posed about the relationship uh, of Palestinians to the black movement. Youssef? Uh, like George, I was one of the original refugees to be leaving Palestine when I was 12 years old. I landed at Alice Island uh, on my 12th birthday in 1947. And um, um, uh, when we began access uh, in Detroit, the Arab Community Center for Air, uh, Economic Social Services, uh, back then in the 70s, um, I and George were promoting the uh, concept of why don't we join in with the black folks? Why don't we join in with the Native American people? The solidarity uh, is equal because uh, we suffer the same uh, fate that they do and they have been. So. But uh, I'm sorry to say my experience in Dearborn uh, and a lot of the Palestinian groups is they're so fragmented. Um, it's either Ramallah group or Beit Zayt or this or that. And uh, there is a, a tendency to be uh, um, uh, racist to black people as well. So I think we need to clean house and, and make a national movement to link ourselves with the Native Americans and with the Black folks and the Latinos. Uh, I mean, there's strength and unity and by ourselves, we're, we're just helpless. I totally agree with you, Yusuf. And thank you for mentioning you and George. I, actually, I worked very closely with George and Don Yunus, uh, who were one of the greatest supporters of the Center for Arab American Studies that I was directing in Michigan. And I actually experienced both. I experienced support from the community. I also experienced uh, racism as well. Not, you know, kind of but towards other people and so on. Or towards, for example, Detroit versus Dearborn. So there is both. So I think we need to, I agree with you. I think we need to build unity. I need, I think we need to highlight to uh, younger people who are going to be leading, you know, after us, we're all getting, you know, like we need to pass on. Number. Very happy to pass on when I, whenever it's possible. But I think it's so really I, important to connect, to connect with the people who are actually doing it and pass on some of these histories because many people, like I did not know, I, I, I'm, I want to interview you now. You're talking about coming to Ellis Island. My father actually came to the U.S. in 1947 to study in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he came on the boat and he arrived and then Palestine fell and then he became actually stateless 
But then the U.S. demanded that he, they gave him a green card. They demanded that he go fight in the Korean War. And he said, no, I'm not. He was, you know, an Arab nationalist. He wasn't going to do it. And they took away the green card from him and said that you will never become a U.S. citizen. And Palestinians in Knoxville were the ones who actually gave him, lent him some money so he could finish his studies. He and his friends used to go every year to Detroit, drive to Detroit, work in the auto factories, save a little bit money, buy a car and go back. And then he went back home and actually saved the money. And he's still in touch with the people who were in Knoxville at that time. But I'm saying is that there are so many stories that I think these oral histories of our communities are so precious that we also need to uh, accumulate them. We need, and we need to also accumulate the struggles and the joint struggles that you and George and others have been quite vanguard in, in, in building. So I think uh, even though it's a little bit late that there's one more discussion uh, that people would like to have. And that's of course, the question about uh, whether the uh, two-state solution is totally dead and there should be this uh, notion of a one-state uh, solution. So, um, Mike, Michael Friedman, did you want to say something? I mean, there's been a, a, a lot of uh, focus on this uh, recently. Uh, Peter Beinart, who has a long history as a Zionist in the Jewish community, has changed his position from a two-state and he, he is moving not quite, I mean, he, his position about a two-state versus one state, he says that's the wrong discussion to have. He believes the discussion should be about equality of Palestinians, uh, whether it's binational state or a confederation. He's sort of fuzzy on what he's wanting to get, but his clear focus is saying the Zionist dream needs to be reimagined. It needs to be refocused. A Jewish state doesn't mean a state of a Jewish majority that oppresses others, that the idea of a Jewish state is sort of uh, a way for Jews to deal with the Holocaust. And they feel that if they give up the Jewish state, there's bound to be a second Holocaust. And he says, look, the Palestinians, they're, they're projecting on the Palestinians uh, a, a sense of being anti-Jewish the way the Nazis were anti-Jewish, sort of wanting to wipe down when the Palestinians are really just fighting for national rights and civil liberties. And it's a whole different kind of struggle. It's not an anti-Jewish struggle per se, but it's a, it's a, it's a civil rights struggle and equality struggle. And um, there was an interesting quote, Juan Cole, who's a professor at Michigan, had talked about, uh, quoted Chief Justice Warren saying, the, the key thing about being a citizen is the right to have rights. And without recognized Palestinian citizenship, then Palestinians can be seen as stateless and Israel does not have to deal with them as rights. And he says, that's what we have to overcome. He's trying to start a discussion in the Jewish community to recognize Palestinian equality. And he says, it, it's the, the idea of national liberation is, a, is an outmoded kind of, uh, of struggle. It was viable uh, for a while, but now the struggle for equality and it has a much more moral force and as now, now Rabab said, it can build the movement and it's the movement that counts, the, the passion. And so he's not so concerned about what the state will look like, but as long as Palestinians or Israel comes to give Palestinians equal rights, however that comes about, whatever that looks like, that's the struggle to be had. And he thinks that can build a movement. And he's, you know, says that, yes, it looks like we can't win until, you know, the, but the movement begins to progress and gains traction. And then things fall apart, just as in South Africa, it looked like the white supremacists were uh, un unconquerable, immovable until they weren't. Um, and, and so he, he promotes that. And that's creating a, a, a huge debate and discussion in the Jewish community about what kind of Zionism it is and what, how American Jews should relate to Israel. And I think it's opening up some avenues 
and, and, and debate space and dialogue space that really wasn't possible before. And that I think is significant and we have to sort of think about and how to struggle with that. Um, yeah. uh, is there somebody- Question of equality from what one state to two states. And he sees the two states, liberal Zionists cling to this two state solution because it, 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 it gives them a rationale for not facing up to the reality of what's actually going on on the ground in Israel-Palestine. I'm done. Is, is there somebody else who would like to comment on this discussion? I don't know how I can say this politely, but uh, uh, the Jews are the racists that uh, uh, think that uh, Palestinians are inferior, that don't belong there. So I think we need to follow up what Michael just said, that we need to have a one state. I, I know that is a cliche because it's, it doesn't matter whether it's a state or not. The Zionist Manifesto uh, declared that the Jewish state will be from the Niles to the Euphrates, but the Balfour Declaration claimed that the Jews shall have a homeland providing it does not interfere with the rights of the indigenous people. So I think we need to find the solution in those kinds of words where the Jews have to open up and allow Palestinians to return and to share in the land. Uh, they're, they're saying they're gonna throw us into the sea, but the reality is, is that uh, they threw us into the sea. We don't wanna throw anybody into the sea, we just wanna share the land. And uh, that's, uh, Michael mentioned about the projection. Uh, <laughs> they project the things that they're doing and blame us for it. So the victims become responsible for the crime. So we, we need to have uh, some uh, strength from the Jewish people uh, like um, uh, Barbara and Michael and the folks at uh, JVP uh, where we can promote the concept that it's time we opened up and allowed the Palestinians the rights that they deserve. Is there another comment? Uh, Rabab, yeah. would you like to respond yes. on this big question? I, yes. I have never, ever supported two states. And part of the reason I have never supported two states, but because even saying two states means that we actually look at the thing from a perspective that two claims are equal. And I think that in itself is very problematic. Uh, Palestinians actually, when they raised it, they said they wanted a state, and I didn't really agree with that, but they said in the Intifada, in the 87 Intifada, they said freedom and independence. They meant freedom and independence, independence for the West Bank and Gaza, and they meant freedom from the occupation. They continued talking about the right of return, but actually there wasn't much discussion about Palestinian and Israel, you know, what's happening to them, the racism, and so on. I think uh, today there is, I mean, they can keep talking about two states and so on, but we know this is completely unreal. It's not, it's impossible. I mean, people hold on to it. And some folks, you, somebody asked me before about the Democratic Party and J Street, and multiple people talk about it, which I think it's an interjection in order to refuse to have discussions about Palestinian rights. It is really, I think it's very, very important to go back to the basics and say what's going on here. Uh, there is something about, and for me, I think if you want me to choose, I'll say, of course, one state. I don't think one state is enough. I don't think just saying a state solution, status solution, 
is necessarily enough. And I've you know, talked about this multiple times because I really think that we actually need something regional, we need something broader. And then as a scholar, I would say, as a critical intellectual, which might not work in political science or <laughs> negotiations or wherever people are sitting across each other, but allow me to say that since this is a space for us to think. I'm also like, I remind, I remind myself and I remind my students that all the borders are colonial borders that were created by colonial powers. I mean, the whole thing is like where Palestine begins and where it ends. This was as a result of the Sykes-Picot Accord in 1916 between Britain and France, that the only reason we know about it, since Solidarity is a socialist group, let me plug in some socialist, more socialist spirit, that the only reason we know about the Sykes-Picot secret accord that again, the British and the French tried to actually seduce the Arabs, they Arabs, which Arabs the question is, to participate with them. The only reason we know about it is because there was something on November 7th, at the same time it was, at the time it was October 25th, called the October Revolution, that when the October Revolution won, they went into the Doma and they basically exposed all the agreements that the Tsar of Russia had which was one of them. And, the, and, and at the time, the new government, socialist government, they, the British and the French begged them not to make it possible. And they said, we really don't care. We're not actually, we're not invested in this colonial. Because if you remember also at that time, also the Russian, the October Revolution, it wasn't really Russian, because it was multiple people, actually called for an end with the war with Japan, the Russian war with Japan. I mean, this is kind of like, it was actually about peace. It was about peace economy. It was about the kind of peace not peace as, as subjugation, but peace that actually we talk about the peace dividend, peace economy, get, getting rid of weapons and so on, which kill all, kiss us all and so on. And so I think it's really important for us to go back and say there are colonial borders. All these colonial borders, including the so-called border between the US and Mexico and so colonial borders. And then they say we, we need to, so why should, I mean, you don't respect them anyway. You're always trying to think borders and occupying killing. That's one thing. The other thing is, I think it's really, really important, uh, both Yusuf said that, that it is the whole question of the, the leadership of Israel is very racist. It doesn't have, not every single person in the Israeli government has to be Ashkenazi or European. It, that's not enough. That's not necessary in order to pass an, uh, a white supremacist agenda. You don't need to have that. You could have a whole bunch of people of color also pushing a white supremacist agenda. But, and I think this is kind of like the distinction when we talk about people like the Black Lives Matter movement, or with my all due respect, the person who ran against Rashida Tlaib in, 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 in the primaries in, in Detroit. And I won't, I'm not going to talk, but actually you know the politics of the whole, who just because you're a person of color does not really mean that you're going to pursue a just agenda around this. The other thing I would say is the question about, like what does it, the, the Peter Bynard that Michael raised, and I, you know, I went over again, actually today I reread Peter Weinert's op-ed and I also read Brent Stevens' article. And Brent Stevens wrote a whole like op-ed in the name. I mean, he's, the guy is not only right wing, but he is racist to the core. I mean, and then also like a lot of the lies. So he's saying actually the first person who ever called for one set was Qaddafi in 2009. The history shows in 1968, when the PLO became actually a real resistance movement, when the Palestinian movement took it over, the militant factions and so on, that's when they came up with the, with the, with the slogan of democratic secular state in Palestine. 
And I should also add that secular was not at that time, and the secular fundamentalist wasn't against Islam. It was actually to talk about people of all religions living together. So actually the Palestinian leadership at that time had anticipated what would happen when the Palestinian liberation would happen. This is also the Zionist last two months, three months ago, Campus Watch has a webinar. And then they said that Mark Lamont Hill talks about um, the secular state from the river to the sea because it's a Hamas project. And so this is kind of like this whole propaganda and this whole misinformation and this whole racism that brings all of this together. So I think, I mean, I'm not, I really, believe me, I did not become an educator in order just to have an academic degree. I became an educator because I thought if I have DR in front of my name, people might listen to me more than if I was just an activist. I mean, another time we could talk about history, really, because I would like go and organize and so on and people are not listening to me. say, oh, she's just an activist. I said, okay, I'll go get the DR in front of my name. Maybe you listen to me more, okay? Of course, not everybody listens. But I believe that it is, it is, this is our job. Our job to actually educate for socialists. Our job is to be able to put these things out. Said so Yusuf, you talked about the, the, the designers say we want to throw it into the sea. And this is long time always attributed to, to Shukairi, Ahmed Shukairi, the first president of the PLO. Actually, Shukairi spent all his life until he died trying to prove that he never even said that. He never actually said it. And only people started listening when there was an Israeli scholar who wrote an article, I think it was in the Journal of Palestine, so I don't remember anymore, saying that Shukairi never even said that. It wasn't really, it was one time Nouris Saeed on the voice of Cairo, one time said that, it wasn't even Abdel Nasser or anything. And then it gets attributed because the Palestinians never actually said that. When Jewish refugees started immigrating to Palestine at the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, running away from the pogroms, and the ghettos in Eastern Europe and so on, trying to find a place and so on. Palestinians, were, there was, if you look at the history, there, was, there wasn't protests or anything like this. The protests really began and picked up after they found out about the Balfour Declaration, after they found out about the sex people. When Palestinians realized that this wasn't really just because people were coming to Palestine all the time. There is people from all nationalities in Palestine. A number one, and the borders were always colonial. There were fluidity. People went and back and forth and so on from everywhere. Palestinians started protesting. When they realized that this was a design, this wasn't really just people coming and going. And still there were a lot of collaboration. There were a lot of organization and so on. But when the Zionist movement, even in the labor party itself, in the labor movement, started actually pushing the Zionist nationalist prospectors at the expense of Palestinians, buying into all, we're going to turn the land into milk and honey, we're going to make the desert bloom, which by the way, Kamala Harris said that, okay? And we, and she said that she was surprised, and you think that maybe she'll, she'll get a little bit educated, she'll learn before she says all of these things that are completely not true, factually not true, not even about the narrative. And if you think about all of this, that they come up with all these uh, claims and so on, and then, the whole question, which I want to get to what Michael was saying around the whole question of the Holocaust. I want to clarify a couple of points. One is I don't really believe that Palestinians are the victims of the victims. I do not agree with that. I used to say that, but I don't agree. I don't think Palestinians were victimized by the survivors of the Holocaust. Palestinians were victimized by the Zionist movement that came from a particular place that collaborated with colonialist power from the British to the US to the French, all of the colonies power, let's go read the history and so on. 
And then actually the Holocaust survivors were used in the father of Zionism because they had nowhere else to go because the US and colonial European powers closed the doors. People had nowhere to go. The only place they could go is Palestine because it was open borders. They can go and come wherever they want. And people, I mean, people who are refugees, they're going to go wherever they need to go because this was a horrible tragedy. They do, you don't want to repeat that. The question is, what do you do with this tragedy? You honor it. I think as Palestinians, we honor it, of course. We honor all the tragedies. We honor all the genocide, all the Holocaust. Secondly, there is a question, so how do you not make sure that history repeats itself? So I want to mention two examples. One about people from Jewish community who went and stood outside ICE. I think it was last year. Had protests outside ICE when, there, when ICE was caging kids and creating all these uh, um, prisons and so on, and they said never again for anyone. And this is the lesson that we can learn from the Holocaust, and this is the lesson we can learn from Sabra al Shatila massacre. This is the lesson, it's not to say, oh, this is unique. It's unique to any people because, you know, how many, how many Africans died in the Mid Passage? Were killed, actually, because even if they died, it's not a quote unquote natural death. How many indigenous people were genocided? How many people were killed? How many Palestinians were killed at the checkpoints in the civil war in Lebanon? Because they had an ID that was in United Nations uh, refugee ID. I mean, this is kind of like, this has continued. So I think it's really important for us not to say that we are unique. We are part of human tragedies and we are part of human liberation. The other thing I would say is that comes from the Japanese community. And the Japanese community who has been fighting against incarceration and only recently actually there was a huge uh, decision in the Inter-American uh, Commission to actually say that Japanese from Latin American descent who never ever received their redress when Reagan apologized and to the Japanese American people and so on. There was a huge ruling and they people organized and said never, never do not repeat this. And so when the Supreme Court said, upheld the Muslim ban and said that, uh, that uh, oh, this was a mistake of the Japanese, actually Japanese people who fought, including Karen Koramatsu, Fred Koramatsu's daughter, and many organizers in the Japanese community stood up and said, never, don't repeat history. You do not repeat history of oppression. And I think this is when we come up and say, what, how do we fight against it? Is anti-Semitism a unique form of oppression or is anti-Semitism a reflection of actually otherizing somebody else and saying that they are less than and thus they should be killed, I mean, or should be discriminated against and so on. I think if we perceive that theoretically in general and also as a perspective is one thing. The other thing about Palestine and so on, I, you know, for, for uh, forget about Stephen because he's very, very he's terrible. I mean, he's, he's also very racist. Okay? Let's, but let's think about somebody like Peter Bainar who has come a long way. You know, he has come a long way, which is also reminds me of the journey of Jewish Voice for Peace, because Jewish Voice for Peace until two years ago did not have a position on Zionism, right? I mean, it was, it took about whatever, like a year for people to have discussions and so on. And there is the whole question, which is very understandable, that if you are in your community, it is very hard to think of isolated. I mean, let's just face it that when Palestinians say we have the right to self-determination, majority of the Palestinians say yes. And when Palestinians say, all of Palestine, we want to liberate, people say yes. When Palestinians say democratic secular state, majority of the Palestinians, I mean, there are a few who have, are invested in some of the colonial structure, but the majority will say yes. It is 
historically, it hasn't been the same in the Jewish community in the US, particularly when after 67, the Zionist group, there is, I mean, so I think there is a couple of things that has happened. One is the whole socioeconomic change from the people who argue, who fight, fought in the unions, fought uh, for the anarchist movement and so on, the Emma Goldman's and the Bonds and the Communist Party and everybody else. The history of people have been organized, including McCarthyism. But then at some point, that position, many of the people who were actually identifying as Jews, not as uh, communists or socialists or whatever, who happened to be Jews, which is a very different situation. Okay. And many of the people who identified as Jews adopted a Zionist perspective because the Zionist movement also claimed that it was socialist. It was nothing, you know, really was very far from socialism, was very colonial historically from uh, Herzl on. But there was this thing, there was also the anti-Semitism that's going on. There was always the so also the social upward mobility, not everybody stayed ruling really working class and so on. And ethnic, uh, uh, Stephen Steinberg actually has a nice book called, what is it, I think it's called Ethnic Up. I don't remember, the ethnic myth, the ethnic myth. Because he argues against some right-wing black scholars who say that uh, black people should pull themselves by their bootstraps just like the Jews. And he says, you know, you're really wrong, my brother, insisted. Da, 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 da. But in any case, I think this happened. And then what happened is that many people who identified as Jews either, either didn't say anything or identified with the Zionist movement. While many people in the socialist, leftist movement, peace movement, and so on, never identified as Jews. So they spoke day in and day out, they organized and so on. But there was no counterbalance to the Zionist movement that held on after 1967, actually held on to a very right-wing imperialist US agenda. So I think all of these things also we need to learn about. I think we need to talk about them. We need to figure out what happened and so on and not accept a certain version of history that's very dominant, that's actually quite colonialist, quite repressive and so on. The last thing I would say is about uh, what happened with one state. I think, I mean, I, again, I would say Peter Beinart, I think is really great where he got in and so on. I think he needs to be pushed more as you're implying Michael or saying maybe, I think I think the whole even notion of saying giving Palestinians is very um, uh, superior and very racist. Like, what do you mean giving? Why do you mean giving? Like, thank you very much for charity because you did one. I think it's a Palestinians like everybody else. No, we're not more, we're not less than any other people. Deserve the same, the same rights, deserve the same entitlement, deserve, deserve to also be listened to when they say that they're being victimized. Because even our own victimization is questioned. I mean, when you say anything, any story you tell, even a personal story, people say, why? What did you do? Which, by the way, I should remind people, it's not very similar, different from what happened in the US. Because when a black person is killed, until George Floyd and until Trayvon Market and Michael Brown and so on, they must have done something wrong. They must, because people tend to believe the dominant story of authoritarian, of the authority. I mean, this is not something, it's not exceptional to Palestine either. What I am proposing is that we need to have the same kind of analysis that we apply everywhere else to Palestine and the analysis about Palestine to everywhere else. So our mind doesn't have these two compartments or multiple compartments. So we think about one. And then when you go to Palestine, we think about different board games and accept the narrative that's been put to us, either by the government, this is a foreign policy issue. Why is it foreign policy? It's, it's a very, it's a policy, it's a, it's a justice issue. It's not about foreign or domestic or something. It is something that needs to happen. And I really believe 
if you really ask me the truth. I do believe a state where everybody lives together, which is something that uh, Palestinians have raised, including Palestinian former members of the Israeli Knesset, such as Azmi Bshara at the time, who actually ran for prime minister of Israel, and he was and he was driven out because they were going to arrest him. He said it should be a state for its people, not a state of the Jews of the world. And I think reminded ourselves that Jewish National Fund, by the way, it's called the Jewish National, not called the Israeli National Fund. It's the Jewish National controls 93% of the land of Palestine for held in trust for the Jewish people. I think the Jewish people need to come and say, no, no, this doesn't really, I mean, there are more and more people. There is a campaign against the Jewish National Fund. Also, I think when people say, Palestinians say the Jews, this is Netanyahu, never ever, Sharon, never ever, Barak, none of them ever stand up and say, I speak in the name of the Israeli people, by the way. They never say that. They never say we're speaking in the name of Israeli Jewish people. They say we speak in the name of the Jews of the US. So I think, what JVP is doing and other anti-Zionist Jews are doing today and saying, no, you don't speak for us. No, Zionists do not own Jewishness. No, we do not allow Israel to speak in our name because we are not going to subscribe to injustices and allow you to speak. And I think this is really, really important. And I think just to turn it back to kind of like I, I ended up by talking about the program and the attacks and so on. I think the Zionists now are attacking Palestinian scholars and Palestinians per se because they're having a serious problem attacking our Jewish sisters and brothers because if they attack them, it makes all this equation about Jewishness equals Israel equals Zionism fall apart. So they stop. They've been attacking people left and right. So now they stop. They just do it very mildly. And they target because it's much easier to target Palestinians. Not because actually we have more people supporting <coughs> Palestine today than ever before. So I think we need to have a different agenda. We need to have an agenda for justice for everybody and say Palestine is not exceptional. Talk about one state, okay, fine. Um, you know, you want to have a state, okay. But I definitely do say that, I mean, even also that ship has sailed anyway. So they can keep latching onto it, but this is passe. It doesn't even, it doesn't even work anymore. But I don't think we need to talk about the pragmatic aspect because we need, then we reduce it to kind of details and which is really a question of justice and the question of equality and dignity and, and freedom. So I know that we could go on, but we really need to uh, say goodnight. This, this is a long discussion, and I think it's been a thoughtful one um, about uh, how we can connect the various struggles and see them as, uh, as united, uh, even if we are uh, working on one rather than the other, but how can we pull it all together so that what we really are talking about is a vision of society which puts human beings at the center and uh and not the profit system well uh thanks so much for everyone who uh contributed and uh particularly to rabab uh, we were delighted to have you this evening thanks everyone for your contributions good night thank you thank you for having me good night